Welcome to Planet Watch, big solutions to Earth-sized problems. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. And I'm Joe Jordan. Today on the program, a conversation with Dr. Robert Kopp, a Rutgers University climate scientist and policy scholar who's the lead author of the most recent governmental report on global warming. We'll have that interview, plus a report on selective logging in California, as well as a report on wave energy. We'll be looking at all that, plus more coming up in the show. And if you want to support Planet Watch, we have a new Patreon page. That's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N. <laughs> Patreon is a web platform that lets you give small or large donations each month, and you only have to set it up once, and you can discontinue it at any time if, should you wish to do so. You can find that Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash planet underscore watch. And if you want to get in touch with us during or between these programs, like today even, email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And if you'd like to see us, we're streaming live at this point on Facebook. So go to Facebook and look up Planet Watch and you will find us. Uh, oh, yeah. Happy faces looking at you. Hi. And happy New Year, everybody. And uh, first, a short look at the top, some of the top stories in science this week from some of our illustrious community college interns. And me. <laughs> and Rachel, yes. And in this uh, newest survey of Americans' attitudes about climate change, Yale and George Mason universities have found some telling trends. Seven in ten registered voters think global warming is happening. However, belief that it is happening has declined among Republicans since the 2016 election. A majority of registered voters think global warming is caused by mostly human activities. 87% of registered American voters support more research into renewable energy sources, such as solar and wind power. But half also support expanding drilling for oil and natural gas off the U.S. coast. More on that in a moment. Across party lines, a majority say corporations and industries should do more to address global warming. About 4 in 10 registered voters are participating in or would definitely or probably participate in a campaign to convince elected officials to take action to reduce global warming. However, only about one-third of that number say they've actually contacted an elected official during the past 12 months. So the take-home on that is action, not just words. Now, Maya Rodriguez, one of our interns, has a story for you. According to a paper recently published in Science Magazine, oxygen levels of the ocean have dropped significantly over the last 50 years. The amount of zero oxygen zones has quadrupled since 1950, and low oxygen zones have increased by 10 times. These areas are known as dead zones because the oxygen levels are so low that most marine life cannot survive. The study finds that the depletion of oxygen is due to global warming and nutrient pollution from agriculture, sewage, and fossil fuels. This change in ocean chemistry can reduce biodiversity of marine life, threaten food security, and increase the production of nitrous oxide, a potent greenhouse gas. According to the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center, cutting fossil fuel emissions, improving sewage systems, and protecting vulnerable marine life are important steps to improve the health of our oceans. And Sanaya Lakdawalla will update us on the latest information about plans to drill off California, Oregon, and the East Coast. Last Thursday, the Trump administration proposed the largest expansion of offshore oil and gas drilling in U.S. history. The plan would allow new drilling off both, both the east and west coasts. The governors of several coastal states have vowed to fight the plan because of the potential effects of offshore oil spills, as well as the dangers of fossil fuel dependence. The California State Coastal and Lands Commissions, as well as other state-run regulatory bodies, have the authority to out, overturn or shut down federal actions that could harm the coast. Furthermore, increased drilling off the coast of California may not be profitable to oil companies at a time when domestic oil production is at a high and fracking is a cheaper energy source. With the legal and economic issues surrounding the plan, the likelihood of the proposal being implemented is quite low, according to the California Coastal Commission. Last week, the Trump administration also announced that it would loosen oil drilling rules put in place after the 2010 Deepwater Horizons bill in the Gulf of Mexico, which required more frequent safety inspections of oil rig equipment. Thank you, 
Sanaya. And do you have solar panels on your house? Well, maybe when it's a really hot day, they might not be performing as well as you think they are, especially if you have a dark-colored roof. Here's more for that from Tommy Martin. Too much heat could be a bad thing for solar panels. Doctoral students at Kansas University's School of Architecture and Design are studying the efficiency problems presented with temperature increases. Every degree above 77 degrees Fahrenheit decreases the panel's efficiency. The study tested three roof materials, highly reflective white, conventional black, and vegetated green. While current industry practice favors white roofs, the experiment found the heat they reflected actually made the panels perform less efficiently. However, compared to the black and white roofs, vegetated roof, which was covered in trays of living greenery, were far more efficient. Panels installed over the green roof generated an average 1.4% more energy than both the white and black roofs. The next step of their experiments will look at panel height and other solar techniques involve placing panels on the ground, in the ocean, in the tops of trees, and on freestanding mounts. Thanks, Tommy Martin, for that story. And you might notice that if you're in one part of the country, you're freezing to death. And over here in the West, we have been sweltering almost in a very rare uh, 60, 70 degree climate, or I should say weather. Um, and Joe Jordan's going to have more for that. Yeah, just a little bit on what's been going on in the East Coast. First, just a couple of my usual comments on previous stories there. Yeah, solar panels perform best, most of them, in colder weather, <laughs> uh, leading up to what we're about to talk about. Uh, and uh, Tommy said something there about the heat that they reflect. It's actually the heat that they absorb that impairs their performance. Of course, they're also absorbing light, and that's what we want them to do. And back on the thing about uh, nitrous oxide, an important greenhouse gas, which Maya talked about, um, N2O, it's actually laughing gas, but the excess of it in our atmosphere is no laughing matter. <laughs> so now the big storm back east, I wanted to get my cousin Nancy in Maine, who really knows what's going on up there. She's probably right at the, well, it's kind of moved on off into the northeast and into Canada now. But uh, look, the main upshot of all that, a lot of people seize on this extreme cold and they say, see, there's no such thing as global overheating. Well, look, here's the deal. You get more energy in the atmosphere, which is what the greenhouse gases do. They trap energy in the atmosphere. When you get more energy, you get more extremes of weather, both hot and cold, rainy and dry. So deal with it. <laughs> That's what's going on. I believe there was a tweet from um, the person occupying the White House. Oh, yeah, he needs to get a sixth grade science or just any sixth grade education. What did he say that, that the, this proved it was all? A big well, hoax. yeah, he just said we could use some global warming out here uh, because it's really cold. But uh, anyway. Yeah, well, that just uh, goes <laughs> to show that it's good to have a science education. We support that fully. And uh, that's what we're trying to do here. That was on. fake knowledge that he was <laughs> spouting off there. <laughs> well, you were saying there's a difference between climate and weather. Yes, yes. And so climate is what happens on a global level on a much slower scale, it's more mm -hmm. geologic time. And weather is what happens on a weekly and daily basis. Yeah, so we're kind of bending the weather over the arc of time with the stuff we're messing around with in the atmosphere. Certainly seems strange when you look at the pictures of Alabama, Florida, palm, palm trees freezing. Um, that's not normal. Oh, yeah. By the way, I keep meaning to say this and forgetting it. Did you notice it snowed in Mexico a few weeks ago? That's news. <laughs> oh, and by the way, the thing that really caught my eye about this latest storm on the East Coast is, I mean, I've experienced temperatures of plus and minus five degrees Fahrenheit. But when it, that's the high for the whole day, a high of 5 degrees Fahrenheit in the United States, the continental United States, that's, that's news. <laughs> Do you know why they call it bombogenesis? What a new word. We're having to invent words to describe these unusual events. Well, they were talking about a bomb cyclone. I mean, the bomb is like, well, the, the pressure drops so rapidly that it just causes sort of the opposite of hell to break loose, at least in terms of temperatures. And then the genesis is just the weather conditions were spinning this up, literally. And by the way, a cyclone is the opposite of an anti-cyclone. In the northern hemisphere, cyclones, i.e. low pressure systems, spin counterclockwise, whereas anti-cyclones, they're, they're good. They're the high pressure systems, although sometimes they can cause extreme drought and drying, but they spin clockwise in the northern hemisphere. In the southern hemisphere, both are the opposite of what I just said, and uh, to get that all straight, you should go back and listen to the archive of this program. Now, I noticed they named this storm. I have never heard of them naming a winter storm. I forget its name, you know, William or something, but mm. did they usually do that? 
Yeah, remember uh, Sandy was in October. That, that was that was considered a hurricane, and that was one uh-huh. of the named storms. But now they called it winter cyclone, so and so. So we'll have to look that up for next time. Yeah. But they are calling um, what's happened for a little while in the past month in California another version of the RRR, the Ridiculous uh. Resilient Ridge. And uh, that's one of those other terms that seem silly, but they kind of have dire consequences. It's just our ability to try to name these yeah. things because they're unprecedented. We don't have new That names term was invented by, uh, well, among others, uh, Noah Diffenbaugh, who's a graduate of UC Santa Cruz. We'll have him on this show sometime this year. And we'll ask him about R, R, and R. <laughs> right, right, right. Our rest and relaxation and ridiculous resistant Ridges. ridge. Exactly. Which seems to have, have moved off of the California coast because we're getting a gully washer. I don't know about you folks in Ohio and Chapel Hill. You're probably freezing and wishing some of our warm weather will come your way. Well, we'll do our best at Planet Watch to send it there. And we appreciate you listening regardless of whether we can do anything about the Yeah, the, the next weather. couple of days here is going to be wet and wild and woolly and windy. So you might not want to come out here The four W's? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, this this next uh, guest, I think you'll really enjoy hearing from. He's gotten a number of awards for being one of the sharpest up-and-coming young, I think he's 37, scientists on the climate front. His name is Dr. Robert Kopp, and he's won numerous accolades for his work on climate. Um, he is director of the Coastal Climate Risk and Resilience Initiative, and an interdisciplinary training program for graduate students. Um, and he is most recently the author of Economic Risks of Climate Change, a book uh, he co-authored with a couple of other scientists. Most recently, along with 50 other eminent scientists, he authored what is considered the most up-to-date and comprehensive report to come out of the U.S. federal government, despite the fact that the commander-in-chief believes global warming to be a hoax. This report confirms and strengthens the vast majority of climate scientists' point of view and findings what they have known for decades, which is climate change is happening, that humans are primarily responsible, and often it's happening faster than we think. Oh, yeah, there's actually something, a sneak preview that's in this uh, where he says humans are actually most likely responsible for more than 100% of the observed overheating of the globe. Now you say, well, how can that be? Well, it's because the natural forces, which the right wing keeps trying to chalk it all up to, they actually are now in a mode where we should be cooling. The Earth should be cooling. Mm. So not only is it not cooling, but it's doing all this heating, and that's all on humans. I'm very pleased to welcome to Planet Watch Bob Kopp. He is a climate scientist, and he was one of the lead authors in the recent report that came out from the federal government about climate change. That was um, back a couple of months ago in October. And we're speaking with him about the findings in that report and also... um, anything new that's happened since then. So welcome to Planet Watch, Bob. Thank you for being here. That's my pleasure. So tell me, just in a nutshell, I know it's hard to summarize such a big report, what were the takeaway points that might have been different in this report from previous reports? Um, well, there's, uh, you know, th- th- this report's an assessment of the literature. Um, and so it's building on uh, that three to four years of advances since the last national climate assessment uh, that came out uh, in 2014. Um, so this report finds uh, that climate change is real. And here, uh, the current period is now the warmest in the history of modern civilization, um, that it is predominantly caused by us. Um, in fact, uh, it's possible that more than 100% of the observed warming is caused by humans, Um, that climate change is having observable effects on things ranging from temperatures uh, to rainfall to changes in glaciers to sea ice, um, and that these effects are going to continue and become more intense the more greenhouse gases we emit. Is there anything new on the speed of change? I don't know if you can chart such things. It does seem like events are accelerating, but that's um, maybe not a scientific observation. Uh, yeah, so, well, so nothing, I would say, particularly framed in that way. Uh, one major area of advance since the third national climate assessment uh, relates to what's called detection and attribution, which is our ability to tie specific weather events 
uh, and the way to the way climate change has made them more intense um, or more severe. Um, so, so we certainly learned a lot more spent in the last few years about the role of climate change in affecting the weather events we're experiencing. Have we learned anything new about the connection, as you mentioned a little bit there, uh, between extreme weather events than we knew before? And how do we know that? How do we are the models just better? Well, so uh, well, yes. Of course, the models the models are improving all, all, all the time. Um, so is you know so so is the way we're asking questions. Um, but um, both the, the 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 performance of the models and our ability to run them um, has improved. Um, but, you know, the, the basic tie in many cases is um, not that complicated and it's, and, and it's a matter of asking the right questions. So, um, you know, for a while, this, the literature um, got sort of stuck on the question of was this event caused by climate change, right, this particular weather event? And that's a very hard question to answer in most circumstances. Did the particular dynamic configuration of the atmosphere and ocean that led to a severe flood uh, or a severe heat wave, um, is that related to climate change? Rather, the question that we've gotten pretty good at asking and, at asking and answering in many questions is, given that we have a particular weather event, how has climate changed? How has the changing climate made that event more intense? How has warmer oceans made um, a tropical cyclone more intense? How has a warmer atmosphere led to higher rainfall? How has uh, higher sea levels led to increased coastal flooding? So we're getting increasingly good at at, at answering those sorts of questions. And um, so, do you view the wildfires in California as somehow connected? to something observable as far as predicted effects of climate change? Um, well, it's, I think it's a, it's, it's a bit early um, to, to have assessments of the particular events uh, we're seeing right now, uh, but those will come soon. Um, one thing we do find in the report, though, is that hot, dry events are becoming more frequent. And it's that combination of heat and dryness um, an example of what we talk about has compound extremes, multiple types of extremes occurring together, um, is one of the driving factors of wildfire risk. Of course, another wild driving factor is the way uh, vegetation has been allowed to build up in the way, the way human developments have been pushing into areas uh, that were once wilderness. Um, but, but certainly the combination of heat and dryness um, is an important factor um, and the combination of extremes like extreme temperature and extreme dryness coming together is something we expect to see more of with climate change. Do you do these reports uh, each year or are they every couple of years? Um, so, so I personally am, am doing this one report. Um, the Climate Science Special Report is volume one of something called the National Climate Assessment. And the National Climate Assessment um, is mandated by Congress um, under an act that dates back to the early 1990s um, to happen every four years. So the last national climate assessment uh, was released in 2014. Uh, the current one, the fourth national climate assessment, is coming out in two volumes. Volume one, the climate science special report, is focused on the physical science. Volume two, uh, focused on the impacts and local changes, um, is due to come out late next year. What's um, some cutting-edge research that you're involved with that might shift things or change our perspective on how all of these systems work together, the feedback loops and things like that? Is, is there something you're working on that can help us learn more about those? Because we hear that uh, there are these sort of runaway potentials where if the tundra melts, the methane gets released, and the planet heats faster. Can you talk about that particular area, if that's something you're working on? Um, I'm, I'm going to take that in a slightly different direction, but I think related, talk, and talk about sea level rise and the role of what we call positive feedbacks or vicious cycles um, in uh, contributing to sea level rise projections and our uncertainty uh, in them, because that's an area I've, I've done a lot of work on. In fact, I, I just had a paper out um, last week on this topic. 
Um, and so, uh, you know, one of the challenges in projecting future sea level change um, is that there is a, a major contribution from ice sheets uh, that's hard to characterize. Um, and in particular from ice sheets, like much of West Antarctica and some important parts of East Antarctica that are sitting below sea level. Because when they're sitting below sea level, they're vulnerable to some of these positive feedbacks that you were hinting at. For instance, um, there are two modes of instability. One is called the marine ice sheet instability. And the idea of there is basically you have warm water um, attacking uh, one of these ice sheets from below uh, the floating ice from below the ice shelf. And as it erodes back, it exposes a larger cross section of the ice sheet to warm water. So it erodes back faster and then exposes a still larger section. And so it erodes back faster and faster until the tilt of the bed shifts. Um, and then another sort of feedback involves the collapse, collapsing ice cliffs. Same basic idea. Um, if you could get an ice sheet exposed uh, to the open ocean without a protective ice shelf, it can get an ice cliff that collapses under its own weight, exposing still more of the ice uh, to instability and, and another way of getting a, a, a amplifying feedback. And so that's an area we've been working on. We had a paper um, last week looking at the effect of, of those sorts of factors on sea level rise projections. Um, and that paper found that there's potential for those sorts of effects to significantly increase um, sea level rise projections for the end of the century. So whereas before, um, I might have told you that without taking some of those modes of instability into account, you would have, I would have expected to very likely see two to four feet of sea level rise if we're on a high emissions future over the course of the century. With these factors, we could see four to seven feet. And moreover, because these positive feedbacks haven't fully kicked into effect yet, it's really hard to tell until the second half of the century whether we're on a trajectory for two feet or six or seven feet. Uh, those two worlds look pretty similar through the middle of the century because those positive feedbacks wouldn't have kicked in. Um, the good news out of that study, though, is that cutting emissions um, has the potential to significantly reduce the risk of those sorts of positive feedbacks. Um, so whether or not you take those feedbacks into account, if we're on a trajectory consistent with the Paris Agreement leading to near to, to net zero greenhouse gas emissions in the second half of the century, um, we're in our both, both our old projections and our new projections on course for about one to three feet of sea level rise. So that's an example of a, of a, of a positive feedback um, that's quite important that we've been doing some work on. What's the fastest that you reckon um, sea levels could rise in any given decade? Could it happen suddenly to the point where there's no time to move anything? People just have to evacuate? I, I don't think that that's likely, although, although I think it's also somewhat an, a, a, an open question um, how fast say, some of these ice cliff mechanisms uh, can kick in. Um, but, you know, we could be looking at, at, at several feet of sea level rise over the last 50 years um, of the century. So, you know, if you, if you call that maybe pushing numbers, pushing up towards um, as much as a, a, a foot a decade. Um, so, uh, you know, if, if we're in one of those worlds, we certainly don't want to be responding decade by decade. Uh, to the rising seas, we want we we want to be measured responding strategically to them. I think I read somewhere that you had some of your emails uh, subpoenaed or something that that you're starting to become a subject of somebody's need I say witch hunt. I I I, I don't think you need to say that. Um, I'm at a state university, um, Rutgers University, it's the State University of New Jersey. Um, we are subject to the Open Public Records Act, um, and any citizen has a right uh, to request information from, from Rutgers University. Um, now, it happens, uh, New Jersey has what I would consider pretty good law, um, which means there's a broad exemption in our Public Records Act for, um, for, for, for emails and messages and, and other activities related to um, research and teaching. Um, so basically, basically, the activities I would engage in that would actually be subject and not exempt would relate to administrative activities. Um, and uh, that's a, a, a perfectly 
legitimate thing for a, a, a citizen of the state uh, to want to, to know about. Um, where some scientists in states uh, without as well-written laws get it, have, have, have run into difficulty um, is where you don't have those sorts of exemptions. And then there have been some scientists who have had to spend weeks on end not doing science, but instead responding to Public Records Act requests. Uh, and, and that's the point at which I think the, the, these sorts of uh, requests become problematic when they prevent people from doing science. Uh, mm -hmm. But here in, in New Jersey and in Rutgers, uh, we're lucky to have good law and we're also lucky to have good institutional support for managing public records from the, from the university. I guess I mentioned it because the New York Times has an article that said, as its headline, EPA employees spoke out, then came scrutiny of their email. So. We just hope it's not in retribution for something that they're fishing for information to harass you, because we know that James Hansen and other uh, Ben Santer have been the subject of harassment from Climate Depot. Uh, you might have heard of that organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, they're certainly not trying to, to discount that this has happened uh, uh, to, to some of my peers, but but that I think you, 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 there there's there's definitely a, a difference between you know, just a regular open public records act and, and um, you know, it, it, it acts in, in a, Michael Mann, um, who's now at Penn State, but was at UVA, uh, is sort of the, the uh, premier example of this, where, where, where you have uh, uh, people sort of trying to aggressively go after a scientist to get at their, get at, get at their records and um, prevent them from doing science. Yeah. Well, we just heard this week that the list of seven words the CDC couldn't use. So there is a feeling that science is under attack from a number of fronts, including it, the administration that's over it. So, um, and, and, I, and I just, um, I, I certainly share some of those concerns, but I think it's important to emphasize that um, the scientific process is going forward. You know, this, this report that we started out by talking about came, um, was started under the Obama administration, but continued under this administration. It underwent um, public review and underwent review by the National Academies, and it went several rounds, underwent several rounds of interagency review under both the Obama and Trump administrations. Um, and so, I mean, it's important to recognize that, you know, yes, there, there are, are some activities going on uh, that concern me as both a scientist and a citizen, uh, but there's also a lot that's going on that that's happening as it should. And, and the Climate Science Special Report and the National Climate Assessment so far are good examples of that. Is there anything you'd like to leave our listeners with that, that you feel is important for the public to know about this topic that maybe they don't understand very well? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think um, one area that I've been um, trying to work on and, and communicate about the last several years. Um, and I think it's starting to sink in, but then, you know, climate change is not simply an environmental issue. Um, I've done a lot of work with colleagues on the economic risks of climate change, and it's very much an economic threat uh, to many nations around the world. Um, it's a risk management issue. Um, you know, when we think about climate change, we have to think about what we call tail risks, things that may not be the most likely outcomes, uh, but that could be quite damaging if they were to occur. And we have tail risks in part because there is uncertainty about climate change, but uncertainty is not a reason to not worry about it. It's in, especially the uncertainty we have to worry about. The possibility that there could be seven feet of sea level rise in this century, and we're not sure how to characterize how likely that is, um, is an important possibility. It means we need to think about, well, what would we do if we detected that we were on a path towards seven feet? The answer is not to pretend that it has zero probability, right? The answer is, is to think carefully about risk and how to manage it. Um, something that, you know, people do in their individual lives all the time, something that finance companies and national security people do all the time. It, it's really a risk management problem, and, and, and that's really how we should be thinking about climate change. All right. Well, I really appreciate your time today, Bob, and wish you all the best. Thank you for spending time with us here on Planet Watch. My pleasure. All right. Take care. You too.
And that was Dr. Robert Kopp. While that uh, interview was playing, we just got an email message from the state of Maine in the far northeast of the United States of America from my cousin, Nancy Jordan. <laughs> she says, we did get extremely cold weather in the past week and a half or so. It got as cold as minus 17 a couple nights and was minus 13 last night. Today it was 2 degrees. This is Fahrenheit. 2 degrees most of the day. High of 9. Yesterday it was so windy, they said it was a wind chill of minus 20. The worst thing is the wind because you worry about power outages. Anyway, <laughs> thanks, Nancy. <laughs> we'll get you your voice live on the air one of these days. So, okay, now we're switching gears. Um, Santa Cruz Cali County, California, where we five sitting in this studio are lucky to live and be right now, is home to beautiful redwood forests and the dedicated environmentalists who strive to protect them. Lumber companies must follow selective harvest practices which are supposed to protect the ecosystems while allowing logs to be cut for lumber. But some environmentalists are saying what looks good on paper doesn't work so well in the real forest. Cabrillo College student Maya Rodriguez, who is sitting right here and who read one of our news stories at the beginning of the hour, has recorded this story for us. And we're driving up the winding roads of the Coralitos Forest. The sun barely shines through the canopy of Santa Cruz County's beloved redwoods. David Ben Lenup is a registered professional forester for the Redwood Empire Lumber Company. And today, he's agreed to show me one of their timber harvesting sites. We walk down a road of quarry rocks that runs through the clearing. The patch of forest is not what I expected of a logging site. In Santa Cruz County, clear-cutting is banned, so loggers cannot remove all trees from a harvesting site. Timber companies operating within the county, such as Big Creek Lumber and Redwood Empire, must use selection cutting to harvest trees. With this method, up to 40% of large trees within a harvesting site must be left standing. David believes selection logging can even be beneficial for the forest. There, there is a, a place for selection forestry just outside of commercial timber harvesting say a high density, high fire danger area where you would harvest all the smaller trees or all the, the trees that were likely to burn and leave a, a more open stand to be more fire resistant. You could also use selection to grow larger trees on the landscape or to to change the species composition. So there's it's not just a commercial kind of endeavor necessarily. As I look around the site, there are no clearings riddled with stumps, and other than the heavy machinery parked nearby, the area looks unharmed. But environmentalists argue that the harmful effects of selection cutting are still there, just harder to see. Local environmentalist Dr. Betsy Herbert explains how local selection logging could be contributing to the decline of native coho salmon. The, the runs of coho salmon were once legendary in our Santa Cruz region, and now they're reduced to just a few uh, they're just barely hanging on, and roads are considered one of the most significantly impacting operations and conditions that result from, from logging. Federal government is trying to restore coho salmon, and there's what's called the Coho Salmon Recovery Plan for Santa Cruz County. And, yeah, it calls out our road density in Santa Cruz County as one of the worst contributing factors to the conditions of the coho salmon. I spoke with Aaron Kelly, a registered professional forester and forestry professor at Humboldt University, to get her take on the issue. In terms of how we treat roads in California, we have the strictest road requirements in the country, possibly in the world. So the amount of sediment that gets from a road to a watercourse is really minimal. We live in one of the most productive wood-growing regions in the world. And so if you aren't doing selection harvesting and you aren't clear-cutting, you're not doing harvesting, but people still use wood. And, and I really think that this is one of the best places in the world to grow wood. Brian Largay is the conservation director at the Land Trust of Santa Cruz County. He explains why this conservation group allows selection logging on its land. When we do selection forestry, we remove the logs and sell the wood, and that helps pay for our project. To cut and sell a single tree from forest land, you need to get review by this agency team, which I think is five or six different agencies on it. And you have to account for every single 
cubic yard of soil that could potentially wash into a, a stream or, or water body. Despite Santa Cruz County's stringent regulations, up to 60% of large trees can be removed in one area, and old growth forests are unprotected. Local environmentalists feel that they have no influence over logging in their community. Longtime member of the Valley Women's Club, Nancy Macy, shares her experience trying to improve logging regulations in her area. It's really hard to stop a timber harvest plan or to, you know, to even get changes made. The local people have had so much of their concerns just overrun. All these groups got together and worked with the county and with Big Creek Lumber to come up with these regulations. They took it to the Board of Forestry, and the Board of Forestry didn't accept any of them. Part of the reason they didn't accept them is because Big Creek Lumber lobbied against them after having worked with this group and come up with the ideas themselves. Local environmentalist Jody Frediani shares a similar experience. You know, the rule process is, is a very difficult one, and the agencies who are tasked with regulating and Im implementing the rules don't always get what they want because the Board of Forestry, which makes the rules, is dominated by the timber industry. Despite the opposition, registered professional forester David Van Lennep of Redwood Empire is confident that the Santa Cruz County's logging regulations minimize any environmental impacts. California has some of the most stringent forest practice rules in the nation, and Santa Cruz Mountains has its own subset of rules that are even more stringent. One of the benefits of having, you know, our operations here locally is that we are producing, you know, natural resources with a very high environmental standard. But Dr. Betsy Herbert believes more needs to be done. Much more of our forest land needs to be put off limits to commercial extraction. And so we need to really make sure that land trusts are, are doing that and, you know, not just making deals with the timber industry, because that's really the last hope that we have to put more land into preservation, to make sure that it is able to heal itself and uh, regenerate itself to eventually an old growth state. Due to heavy logging in the early 1900s, less than 5% of original old growth forest in Santa Cruz County remain. Despite this, there are no current regulations protecting old growth forests from being logged, and only five counties in California have succeeded in banning clear cuts. Local organizations resort to buying land in order to protect the area from logging and development. The Semperverance Fund has succeeded in obtaining and protecting over 30,000 acres of redwood forests, including what is now Big Basin State Park. The dedication of these organizations begs the question, should we be relying on community efforts to protect our old growth forests? Should local government have more authority over logging regulations? And where is the balance between resource extraction and environmental protection? In Santa Cruz County, the debate continues. For Planet Watch, I'm Maya Rodriguez. When you see the damage and power ocean waves can inflict on land, it seems hard to imagine humans have not harvested all that power to make usable energy. Chanel Escobar takes a look at a wave energy test facility off Oregon's coast that could sort out the successful wave energy generators from the duds. It has to offer. And a yield a usable technology in short amount of time. With a seemingly endless supply of resources that the ocean has to offer, why hasn't it yet become a primary source of energy for us? Their mystery may be solved now that Oregon State University was awarded a $40 million grant from the U.S. Department of Energy to create a test facility. The Northwest National Marine Renewable Energy Center at OSU will construct a wave energy testing facility along the coastline of Newport, Oregon, and is expected to be up and running by 2021. Here is Dr. Pedro Lomonaco, director of Hinesdale Wave Research Lab, to tell us more about it. It's not currently in construction, but the project already started. We are in the permitting phase. And construction uh, itself and, and really uh, some activities at the ocean will start most probably by the end of the winter. Uh, we expected that it's going to be under construction for the following three years, so by 2020, maybe 2021 is going to be operation. 
The facility will be grid-connected with four test berths that in turn can provide millions of people with power along the coast. Once completed, an increase in the number of jobs and a rise in revenue for local businesses is an anticipated result, making it highly beneficial for the economy. My estimate is that probably in the next uh, 50 years, 50% of our energy is going to come from renewable energy uh, sources. Wave energy conversion is still in the beginning stages of development. Uh, if you are a developer and you want to test your device, you, the only way to know that it is going to be efficient is that if you go to the ocean and test it. The best technique has not been found yet. Some work from below the ocean surface to generate power by way of hydraulics. Other methods work to generate power by gathering electricity from the ocean's surface there is not a single specific way of, of producing the, um, the energy. That's, that's the challenge nowadays, and that's mm -hmm. what makes different, uh, the difference between all, all of the uh, different devices and, and options that you have in the market. Many have been invented so far, and while several ways to capture energy from the waves have been successful, the facility can only house a certain amount of converters. With careful scrutiny, the ones with the most potential will be admitted first. So we will have actual wave energy produced by those devices um, by the in the first moment that we have any of those those uh, devices connected. But uh, it's a testing facility, so it's a location that you have those those devices connected and working for a limited period of time. And depending on the performance of those and and how the developer um, improves that that uh, technology then is the next step so it's called ten technology levels so the next technology level they can go is to the production and commercialization maybe in the future let's say I'm, I'm just guessing but maybe there could be five or ten different models that works differently in different locations all over the world how much is one of those wave energy power producing machines worth at this moment, one of one of those devices is in the order of between five and ten million dollars, maybe. Maybe some of those devices are are less expensive, so maybe two or three million dollars. But it's not only the the, the piece that matters; it's also uh, everything that goes around it. Please imagine like uh, um, how much would be for you to buy a car hundred years ago. It was a, a luxury thing, and nowadays we know that we can we have uh, different options that are very affordable for the rest of the of the general public. No, so we are in that stage of uh, of the beginning of of those uh, uh, expensive cars uh, hundred years ago. The fishing industry showed concerns of possibly seeing a drop in the amount of fish they catch as a result of the newly planted wave energy devices. One of the reasons why we selected the locations that we have now, it was in collaboration with them. It was something that, of course, we didn't uh, decide to put the facility uh, just at the center of the best place to fish. <laughs> that would be silly. So uh, it was in collaboration with them, and the, the, the location was uh, uh, selected uh, according to also their needs. How these devices will impact the environment is still unknown. Research is ongoing to better ensure the protection of marine life and habitats. Information regarding potential harm to the environment from wave energy development can be found in the U.S. Department of Energy report. Why hasn't it yet become a primary source of energy for us? It's one o'clock. And that was Chanel Escobar with a report on wave energy and why we yet have not gotten it here or anywhere else. But they sound like they're on their way. And uh, just to keep things straight, you know, people get wave power and tidal power mixed up. Wave power is actually a form of solar energy because the waves on the surface of the ocean are caused by the wind and the wind is caused by the sun, the uneven heating of the earth, you know, night and day, highlands, lowlands, oceans and land and so on. Uh, tides, uh, tides are an example of lunar power <laughs> and we still have some pretty high extreme king tides going on now, although they were best uh, about a week ago uh, all over the world's coasts. Um, yeah, so both of these, wave power and tidal power, present pretty substantial resources, although you have to kind of be in just the right place, unlike solar and wind, which are much more broadly distributed across the 
face of the planet. You mean you have to be near the ocean? Uh, yeah, waves. Uh, <laughs> there are land waves in big earthquakes, but we don't like Lake Superior those. probably has waves. You know, <laughs> We don't have to be near the ocean. There's some pretty big waves on That's the Great true. Lakes. That's true. And, you know, uh, just to give you an idea, a little bit of science and physics education here. Uh, a typical meter of coastline, that is a little longer than a yard, three feet, has about 20 kilowatts of wave power coming through. This is on the average. Now, 20 kilowatts is a lot. That is a rate of energy flow. A typical solar home like Rachel's or mine, you know, is uh, powered uh, via photovoltaics at about three kilowatts. That's the rate at which those panels produce electricity on a really sunny day. Uh, so 20 kilowatts per meter, well, hey, then what about a kilometer, a thousand meters, which is a little over half a mile, about three-fifths of a mile is a kilometer. That means you got 20,000 kilowatts or 20,000,000 or 20 million watts, which is 20 megawatts. That's a lot of power. Now, of course, okay, a couple concerns that people express is, what about the surfers? If you're stealing all our wave energy for your electric power, what about the surfing? Well, it turns out that really the surfers will be just fine it's not really going to matter that much to them um unless there's generators right in their surf zone well yeah but they're going to be out farther they're going to they be out be. farther so yeah can you help me answer the question that she asked but i'm not sure it was fully answered which is if it's such a lot of energy and we can tell because it's often ruining houses and flooding places there's a lot of energy why haven't we been able to harness it is it because it's coming from so many directions Mm, no, it's there's a whole bunch of sort of devil in the details kinds of issues like just marine fouling. You've got stuff in a salty, you know, corrosive, uh, turbulent, uh, highly variable environment. It's just, it's a tough thing economically to make it work. <laughs> I am not pinning great hopes on wave power. It is a fairly substantial resource and will be deployed here and there. But in, in fact, the only commercial operations so far that have made a go of it is uh, Portugal and uh, some in Scotland. Uh, but anyway, stay tuned <laughs> for more on wave power. So uh, just want to make sure you get the distinction between that and tidal power. We can talk about that some other time. So, uh, okay, well, let's see. I think, oh, now it's time for our oddball stuff segment of the show and before we do that let's remind oh, yes, folks yes, that yes. you are listening to planet watch i'm rachel ann goodman with joe jordan and uh, various and sundry interns who are with us today and if they have questions in the last five minutes they will flop their hand in the air and if you all out there in radio land or seas have uh questions you can email us at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com and uh tommy's scanning the E-waves, and what do you got there? I've got a question for you, oh, Joe. Okay. Don't we have a supermoon coming up here pretty quick? Oh, no, that was uh, last week. You're too late. Didn't I mean, we have, don't we have another one? Isn't it somewhere um, where we have two in one month? Oh, no, that's a blue, That's called a blue moon. Oh, okay. and, and actually, interesting story on the terminology about blue moons. <laughs> Nobody really knows why the second full moon in a single calendar month is called a blue moon. Um, in fact, there are other schemes for more complicated <laughs> nomenclature. However, blue moons, actual physical blue moons, do occur very rarely when you have just the right size particles in the atmosphere from some distant forest fire. And there was a classic case back in the 1950s where over Europe, the moon looked blue because there was some huge conflagration going on in the great forests of Canada. And the dust was wafting across the northern Atlantic and getting into Europe, and it was filtering out the light so that the moon looked blue. Now, this does not happen very often, hence the phrase, once in a blue moon. Uh, and, you know, you don't get the so-called blue moons, you know, two, uh, the second of two full moons in the same month, very often either. Uh, there's some mathematical thing we could tell you how many times it happens, but uh, I think it's going to happen again later this year. But anyway, so that, so, but, yeah, so we have a blue moon, and the, the more interesting, exciting thing, though, is that blue moon is also going to be red and white because it's going to be, and black, because it's going to be a total lunar eclipse happening, and we'll be able to see it if you drag yourself out of bed at about 4 or 5 in the morning here on the West Coast, and sorry, on the East Coast, you're going to have to come out here if you want to see it, or go to Hawaii, they'll see it there, or Japan. Um, but anyway, so that's coming up uh, end of this month. <laughs> I'll get you the exact dates and times, but you can find all that out if you're interested, which you should be. Uh, you got a month. So that'll be a partial <laughs> eclipse. No, it's going to be a total eclipse of the moon. Total? Total from, eclipse from of the moon. From right here. Huh? From right here. Wow. It's just, you know, oh, dark 30. You got to get up and see it. It's not a, a 
most civilized time of night, except over in Asia and Japan and Hawaii. Um, okay, well, let's see. What else we got here? Oh, I got to tell you, this time of year, the early, no, sorry, the latest sunrise is like right about now, today or tomorrow or yesterday. It depends partly on what latitude you're at. But strangely enough, the solstice, you know, the shortest day of the year, the beginning of winter, was not the latest sunrise. The earliest Sorry, yeah, the earliest sunset happened two weeks before the winter solstice, and the latest sunrise now happens two weeks after the winter solstice. That's cool. It's related to the fact that our Earth, our orbit around the sun is not perfectly circular. It's an ellipse, and we're traveling at different speeds all through the year. Uh, so, uh, oh, and we're at perihelion, by the way. Uh, as of a few days ago, we were at our closest approach to the sun for the whole year. <laughs> by 4 million miles closer than in early July. <laughs> so happy perihelion. This won't be news to a lot of people um, in the Bay Area, but there was an earthquake, uh, 4.5 in Berkeley, California, that was felt as far away as 80 or 100 miles. And right after that, there was an article that came out that said because the Earth uh, is changing its uh, rotation or the speed of its orbit, um, there will be more earthquakes in the next while did you read that one? Oh no but i, I don't in the think next 30 years you read that i Tom? think that's yeah. going to be something to do with uh pol well it, the earthquakes <laughs> trigger the polar wander the the exact location of the north pole on the earth varies a little bit it kind of wanders around it's called the chandler wobble this it's said it was the speed of rotation that mm -hmm. it's like speed a microsecond faster and that will okay. create a flurry oh, okay sure i can believe that rotation not the revolution around the sun i thought you were saying the speed of the re revolution that changes with our distance from the sun but that's not gonna, earthquakes aren't going to affect that but they could affect the rotation a little bit i'll have to look more into that uh by the way uh, tommy reminded me one of the things i wanted to say in honor of the new year is hey congratulations to us all on another trip around the sun yes, <laughs> that's indeed. the title of a book i'm going to write one of these days so uh <laughs> yeah well um anything else here any any questions parting thoughts uh Final thoughts, it's going to have to be very quick because very we're just about out of time quick. and we'd like oh, to Oh, the moon's thank at you. third quarter. Moon's at third quarter tonight, so no it more comes, sides. Up, comes up about midnight. Earth to Joe. No. <laughs> uh, we're wrapping. Uh, right. We have a podcast and you can get to it by going to Planet Watch Radio and subscribe. That means it will come to your pod or phone or whatever it is you listen to podcasts on and you go to planetwatchradio.com and subscribe. That's Planet Watch for this week. I'm Rachel Ann Goodman. I'm Joe Jordan. Keep an eye on the sky. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.